one of those states in the deep south, which is often called the Bible Belt. You may not know that down there, everybody thinks they're Christians. Everybody, you ask them, they'll say, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I remember when I was in college and I was drinking and doing drugs, somebody asked me if I was a Christian. I'd say, yes, I'm not a good Christian. I'd point my good friend, Roger McConnell, who was a true Christian. I said, he's a good one, but I'm a Christian. I looked at the exterior. I looked at, at, I didn't know what to look at, to be honest with you. I was raised in a, in a family where my mom and dad were not believers. My dad was somewhat antagonistic toward the gospel. My mom was raised in a Christian home. She would send us off to church on Sundays, usually myself. Sometimes a couple of brothers and a sister would go with me. But my church didn't teach the word very clearly. There's almost this idea of faith plus works. And so I grew up as a child and as a teenager and as a young man thinking, if in the end my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll get into heaven. But I knew also that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and I need him as my Savior. It was this faith plus works, which so misses the mark. As a little boy, I remember having a real desire to know about God. I'd go to vacation Bible school and to Sunday school, often by myself. Sometimes my brothers, Steve and Roger, would go along with my sister Kathy. And one time at DBS, remember this is Alabama, and so we had an, uh, a call, and you come down the aisle to pray. And I went down. The next day, we're outside. I must have been 12 years old. One of my brothers, I don't know if it was Steve or Roger, one of the ones that we always argued with, started to arguing, and I got upset. And both of them pointed their finger at me and said, You are a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You said yesterday, you went down, and you said you were a Christian. I was confused. See, none of us knew what a Christian was. We had no idea. That faith plus works idea. I, re- I remember growing up with a lot of don'ts. Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't do drugs. Don't curse. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. And don't get involved sexually. And there were some do's. Go to church. Tell the truth. Be respectful of your teachers and those who are older. Be nice. Read the Bible. Obey the Ten Commandments. That's what I grew up with. I became confused. And so for several years, I just gave up. Went to university and got involved in drugs and alcohol. It wasn't until I was 25 years old that I went over to a pastor and he shared the gospel with me. He took me to God's Word. He took me to places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. And all the peace that I had 
How do you understand that? Well, today as we look at the Sermon on the Mount series, we're going to see that the multitudes that Jesus spoke to were somewhat confused, like me, because of the teaching of their leaders. The scribes and Pharisees had failed to present the Old Testament scriptures in an accurate way. They made it all about the exterior, our behavior, rather than about the heart. Well, Carrie, about three weeks ago, opened up this study with a study on uh, looking at the Beatitudes. The next, Nathan came along and, and talked about our need to be light and salt in the world and the influence that we could have. And having described the citizens of heaven and who they are and what we should be, Jesus then proceeds to look at the righteousness of God's kingdom. And first, he corrects a false impression that the multitudes had. If you will, pull your Bible out and let's look at, again, Matthew 5, chapter 17, and I want to read, um, rather, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus first hits his impression that he didn't respect the Old Testament law. And there were reasons why people thought that maybe that Christ didn't uh, respect the law or he was anti-law. Remember, he healed on the Sabbath. And so people would say, well, Jesus, he doesn't respect the law. The scribes and Pharisees developed this elaborate system that we've, most of us have probably heard about, 613 laws. They had some do's and don'ts like I did. They had 365 prohibitions or don'ts and 248 commandments or do this. And these laws, again, focused on the exterior instead of the heart. Christ frustrated the Pharisees and uh, the scribes. He was a radical. He was a radical. He was a maverick. He, con- he contradicted their traditional interpretations of the law. His lifestyle was so very, very different. He refused to follow those man-made laws of the scribes and Pharisees. He spent time with women in order to share the gospel with them. He ate with sinners. He healed on the Sabbath, as I mentioned. He limited the freedom of men to divorce their wives. He declared people forgiven of their sins. And he threw the money changers out of the temple. Jesus frustrated these scribes and Pharisees. And because of these things, Christ was seen as being anti-law or against the law. But he assures them that he's not. And he goes on and says that he will fulfill the law. And he also goes on and, and explains the original purpose for which the law was given and even lost over the years. 
Christ says he came not to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled the law in, in, in different ways. First, he fulfilled many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. Remember, Christ was that perfect man, perfect God. Thirdly, he fulfilled it by bringing out its full meaning as he teaches or as he taught. Fourth, and I think probably the key part of fulfillment here is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament by providing a way of salvation that meets all the righteous requirements of the law. He had a high view of Scripture. He declared that the law was eternal. In, in verse 18, verse 17, says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away. Jesus definitely believed in the law. He says until this earth passes away that the law will be in, in place. He goes on in verse 19, and he talks about the fact that whoever relaxes one teaching of Scripture will be called the least in the kingdom. Jesus respected. He had a high view of Scripture. Christ was saying, don't tamper, don't toy with what God's Word says. Well, once Jesus established the fact that, that he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it, not to do away with it, in verse 20, he proclaims really the thesis for this whole, this whole series on Sermon on the Mount. Look at, at verse 20. Christ says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom. One more time. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom. That was radical. Jesus Christ was radical there as he talked with the Jewish people. He said you had to be more righteous than, than these leaders. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the top scholars. They were the key leaders. They were the ones who knew the law. How could Jesus say that? This is shocking. It's kind of like Jesus Christ raised the bar. Back to an intentional meaning. How many of you watched the Olympics this summer? Many of us did, right? Do you remember the pole vaulting? you remember how they'd raise the bar? You'd, they'd make it cross, and then they'd raise it a little more. Well, Christ raised the bar for righteousness. He raised it ten times higher than anyone could ever pass it or jump over. The scribes and the Pharisees and their elaborate systems of requirements that concealed these laws, remember, these laws, these regulations, they concealed, they hid the meaning of the Word of God. Keeping these traditions seemed to make it harder 
The truth is, they hid the meaning of God's word. They demanded the external. And yet, God requires internal obedience. Yes, Jesus always required inward obedience. Isaiah 29, 13 says, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The scribes and Pharisees added to the scripture. If you go back to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, there's one where it says that, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and don't do any work on it. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees began to say, well, you can't work on Sunday. And they all decided that to carry a burden was work. And anybody who cared anything of any, of any amount was sinning. And so they said that any food that's equal to the weight of a fig. Do you know what a fig is? I didn't figure you would. I grew up down south, so they're figs. The little guy's probably no bigger than this. Very small. Very, very, very small. The scribes said to the people, to keep the Sabbath, you can't even carry the weight of a fig. Or if you're not carrying figs, if you have ink and paper, the amount of ink to write two letters of the alphabet was considered a burden. If a tailor happened to put his needle inside his cloak and walked out, he was sinning. They struggled and went back and forth with, could you even move a lamp from one side of the room to another? Some even said that if you had an artificial leg, you couldn't wear it or you couldn't use a crutch. Do you see how the, the scribes and the Pharisees took God's word, keep, it, keep the Sabbath holy? and don't do any work, and they, they distorted the meaning of it. Jesus continually confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. I think we're all familiar with the passage in Matthew where he says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus confronts this false teaching about salvation through works, through effort. He redefined, redefined righteousness and clarified the law. Scripture is filled with passages that contradicts salvation by works. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Romans 3.20 and 21 said that no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. 
But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, once Jesus establishes the fact that the people needed a righteousness that was higher, that was more righteous than what the, the scribes and Pharisees are, he, he gives six illustrations. And these illustrations will go throughout the next chapter or two, throughout the whole uh, sermon. And they are illustrations of the need for a better righteousness. And you see over here uh, some different things. You see first murder, which we'll be looking at today. And then there's adultery. I can't see all these over here, but down the line there's... Uh, there's um, lust, there's um, oaths, and there's um, loving your enemies down the line. But each of these illustrations begin with a variation of, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And what Jesus was saying is, this is how you were taught. This is how you were taught. But now, I'll tell you what it really means. I'll tell you what it really means. I remember when I came to Christ at the age of 25 and I went to this pastor sitting in his office and I had all these ideas and he knew, he knew the culture. And he'd say, Ralph, you believe that you've got to do this and this and this. He says, but look, here. He'd take me to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and, and he'd read to me. Ralph, you're saved by grace through faith. And then I'd start, I was raised in a Methodist church, and so I thought I could lose my salvation, and Satan would hit me, and, and he'd take me to the Word, and he'd tell me what God's Word said. In the same way, Jesus was taking the Jewish people back then, and he's saying, you, you, you heard it, you, you've heard it taught this way, the scribes and the Pharisees, Described it this way. But let me tell you how it really is. Let me tell you how it really is. In verses 21 through 26, we will see, as we look at murder, we'll look how destructive, how radically destructive the nature of sin is within us as we look at murder. Let's look at our Bibles, he would, and uh, look at uh, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, here Jesus takes this command not to murder. And he goes and he just tears it apart from what they've been told. You know, to murder seems pretty simple, doesn't it? And only, in a sense, it helps us if we are thinking of murder just as taking the life of someone, shedding someone's blood. But Christ 
this is not the case. See, murder is something we're familiar with. And I would dare say that I know for me I've never murdered anyone by shedding their blood. I've never, never murdered. If it is just taking the life of someone through shedding of blood. And I would dare say that you guys haven't murdered anyone. In this passage, Jesus says that we must give up the anger and give up the rage and give up contempt. In this passage, he gives three ways that we can murder, three ways that we break the law, and three ways a person's life is removed besides the physical act. In each case, we'll see this punishment. First case, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And the word here is furious, anger, furious, enraged. Christ says here, not only is murder breaking the law, but anger alone is a violation. We must eliminate anger in our relationships. Well, how are you feeling so far this morning? How are you feeling? Does it kind of make you feel a little bit uneasy? I'll tell you what, I struggle with anger. I think, I think most of us struggle in different ways with anger. There's some of us that love just to blast people that they're angry with. Man, you know when they're angry. They let you know. There are others. We kind of stuff it inside. We seem like good, nice people until something happens. But then, boy, we either get depressed or that anger level builds in us to a point when something happens and we snap. It changes the picture of who we are. It changes the picture of who we are. Well, verse 22b, Christ goes on. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or to the Sanhedrin. The second case, the word for insults his brother in ESV is sometimes uh, translated as raka. I think the NIV does that. This word here, insult or raka, means empty-headed, airhead, numbskull, nitwit, blockhead, bonehead, idiot. Now, I know that none of you have ever said that word or heard anyone say it. I know that sometimes we can use words playfully, and I know that. I know that rascal can be used in a wrong way, but those of you who know me know that rascal, to me, is a very loving term of endearment. Okay, so I, I, I know that sometimes joking around 
we can say, you bonehead, why'd you do that? And it's done in love. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. It's referencing the fact that we demote someone's person. We, den- we demote their value to a level of being a nobody, a nothing. They're worthless. In this, Scripture says that the judgment is going before the Sanhedrin Council. Again, if we're honest, these terms are bannered back and forth. And I want to be careful, but I want us to be very careful to not use this term in a way that would be demeaning. Because these words, when used in a wrong way, and that's, I think, most of the time we hear them, is contempt for someone's intelligence, contempt for someone's ability to think for their so airhead, a numbskull, a nitwit, a blockhead should be terms that we don't use. Well, Christ goes on and again in verse 22, the third part there of it says, whoever says you fool will be liable of the hell of fire. And the word fool here is a moral reprobate. It's an evil person. John Stott warns, even though we shouldn't be calling each other fool, but he says that in the context here that the term had acquired both a religious and a moral overtone, being applied to those in the Old Testament who denied God's existence, and the result plunged into reckless evil doing. So reference to, a, to living a morally wasted life, deserving of hell. Some scholars suggest the word rebel or apostate or outcast in the judgment is hellfire. A.B. Bruce summarizes these two words, uh, raka and, and, and fool, and he says, raka expresses contempt for one's intelligence. And he says, like, you're stupid. You're stupid. And fool expresses contempt for one's heart and one's character, such as you scoundrel. But Jesus is saying that just because you and I haven't shed blood, don't think that we're not guilty. Don't think that we're not guilty. We're guilty enough to receive judgment, and as in each of these cases, if we've ever harbored anger and contempt, if we've ever wished anyone dead, we're guilty of murder. Kent Hughes, who used to be a pastor at College Church in Wheaton, says, we cannot escape the truth. We are all murderers. We've all murdered others in our mind and hearts. It's not very uh, encouraging, is it? But it's truthful. First John 3.15 says that everyone 
who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Again, Jesus is saying murder is more than actually taking of a life. Here again, we see that radical righteousness. Again, the Pharisees, they had, they had the levels pretty low where we could jump over. But Christ raises a bar for righteousness. He says, don't just not murder. Don't be angry. Don't call people by these names. Again, it's not that merrily outward type behavior, but it's that inward heart. That inward heart that Christ is calling us to look at. Today in our culture, there are some people who are considered not important. Think of the poor. We've all talked at different times about the fact that when someone is killed, here in the city and south side, it doesn't make news sometimes, does it? But then sometimes when someone is killed in the suburbs, it's a big headline. Sometimes our kids aren't as important as other kids. The mentally ill, it's easy for us to have contempt for those who are different I thank God that good news is situated here in this city because we have a good mixture of peoples so we're around people who don't look like us we're around people who come from different cultures but it's easy it's easy to not respect someone who might be very different from us. Think of abortion. When people abort a baby, I don't think it's so much that they hate the baby. They've made a decision that they'd be happier if that baby wasn't born. And so we judge that that particular baby is of not of any value, is worthless. On the opposite extreme of life, as we look toward old age, Euthanasia, where people are saying, eh, if they don't have a certain quality of life, then we might as well just let them die. If we judge people to be good for nothing or useless or valueless, then it's okay to kill them. It's okay to kill them. And we, of course, can destroy people or kill people not just by action but by our words. When someone calls us a fool, they're saying that we're morons and that we're stupid and that we're trash down the line. Think of the book of James chapter 3. The passage talks about how we control horses which are strong and heavy and big with a bit. And it talks about a ship 
that is large and yet is controlled by a small part, the rudder. And then it says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Murder is a heart condition. And Christ shows us clearly that our hearts are evil except for Christ being in us. There's a little girl who went forward. Maybe she was down south. They had an altar call. She went forward and talked to the pastor and said she wanted to be saved. And afterwards, the mother rushed up and said, what would you do? And she said, why, well, I, I came forward because I need to be saved, Mom. And the mom said, honey, you're a good girl. You, you read your Bible, and you don't give your dad and me any trouble. You don't need to be saved. You, you're too good to need to be saved. And the little girl looked at her mother and said, Mother, you can't see my heart. You can't see my heart. Well, first, God can see my heart, and he can see your heart. And Christ says, first, it would not to murder, and secondly, he says it would not to have attitudes that can lead to murder. And in verses 23 through 25, Christ takes it to another level, and he says, if someone's mad at you, seek to be reconciled. If somebody's mad at you, seek to be reconciled. And he doesn't say that the person is necessarily right to be angry at you, but if you know someone who has something against you, you do that. Well, let's look. Let's look at verses 23 through 25 of chapter 5 of Matthew. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you, may, or while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What we see here that, that we're to be reconciled to our fellow believers. You can here imagine this person who was going to offer a sacrifice, how about stand in line to wait? And, and, and maybe it seems like he had taken his sacrifice to offer and remembered. And Christ says, leave it. And go and take care of the situation with your brother. I 
I realize sometimes that there are people who don't want to be reconciled with. But Romans 12, 18 says that if possible, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. I think in my situation in counseling with people over the years, and, and, and we all long to have that relationship with someone in our life. And sometimes that person is a person that we can't be close to. We try and try. And sometimes I've pointed at an inanimate object like a lamp or, or a chair. And I'll call the person by name and I say, Your mother or your father can love you as much as this lamp can. So as we deal with this, I, I want us to do what God calls us to do. But I want us to be aware also that sometimes we'll face a situation where someone is not willing to be reconciled. But, as Romans 12 there says, as long as it, as far as it depends on you to be in peace with that person. Well, secondly, Christ says not only would to be reconciled to our brother, the second case is with our enemy. He says, come to terms quickly with the accuser. Is there a head of Dr. Court? God wants us to deal with issues up front. He says do it quickly. To do it quickly. And again, when you make that good faith effort with someone and they refuse to be reconciled, your conscience can be clear. But I want to reiterate, as much as possible, we need to do everything possible to be right with others. But not only does Jesus forbid the act of murder, he prohibits attitudes that lead to murder. He commands us to seek peace with our angry brother and with our adversary. Back in 1990, there was a, a column, a story that appeared in Dear Abbey. As a young man from a wealthy neighborhood, was about ready to graduate. And the custom in this affluent neighborhood was that parents would buy their child a, a new vehicle, just like here, right? Same thing? Yeah. Well, for months beforehand, the father and the son named Bill looked for vehicles. And then the week before graduation, Bill and his father found just the right car. Just the right car. And so Bill just imagined in his mind that this car would be his on graduation night. Imagine Bill's disappointment when, on the eve of graduation, Bill's father handed him a gift-wrapped Bible. Bill was so angry, he threw the Bible. He left home. He never went back as long as his dad lived. He came back home when his father died. The funeral, and it was one day or two days later, he was looking through 
his dad's stuff and he found that Bible. He dusted off the dust. He opened it up. Inside the Bible was the cashier's check for the amount of that car. Dated the day of his graduation. I think there are a couple of things we can draw from this story. One, Bill was a spoiled brat. <laughs> two, though, two, his father should have pursued him. His father should have pursued him. She's gone after him. Well, as we close up, is there someone that you need to be reconciled with? Is there someone that you need to pursue this morning? What's your heart attitude toward those in your workplace or in the classroom if you teach or in your home as a parent or in your marriage with your spouse? How does your heart feel toward those with whom you have contact with? Do you value them? Or do you despise them? Looking down on them with contempt. What's your heart? I don't know your heart. But God knows mine. He knows yours. I'd like for you to take some time just to contemplate. Psalm 139 talks about the psalmist says Lord search me see if there's any wicked way that I might confess and turn from it embrace all righteousness it's not letter but spirit and secondly maybe there's someone here today that is not a Christian maybe there's someone here like me growing up that's confused about this Christianity stuff. They don't understand. If you don't understand, today's a good day to ask questions. John 3:36 says that anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. John 10:9 says, I am the gate, and those who come in through me will be saved of course in one John 14 6 we know so well Jesus says I'm the way and the truth and the life first Timothy says there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity that man Jesus Christ Acts 2 38 Peter says each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sin. Again, remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For you're saved through grace by faith. I don't want anyone here to leave today. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay 
to ask questions. Well, as the band plays, I encourage you to consider that. If the prayer counselors would come up, I'll pray. Our Father in heaven, oh Lord, this is such a, a heavy passage, and yet it's a wonderful passage, because Father Christ made it so clear. Thank you, Father, that once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, that your Spirit comes and lives within us. And, Father, it's through your Spirit, Lord, that we are enabled to live the Christian life. And it's not by working. Oh, Father, if there's anyone today here who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, Father, may they feel comfortable enough to come and to ask questions. And, Father, for those of us as believers who struggle, Lord, with being in right relationships, Father, we all struggle in different ways and different times. Father, I pray, Lord, that you help us to be reconciled to those with whom we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.